This is the Formation Lab. Welcome one, welcome all to the most classic Formula One podcast out there. It's the Formation Lab. I'm Luke. I'm joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim. Tim, how you doing? Well put, well put. Now, some of you may not may have noticed that uh, Tim was awfully, oddly silent right there. And, uh, well, what can I say? That is uh, because Tim is taking care of a sick, uh, significant other this week. So, it's just your boy. All right. So, this is going to be a little more of a stream of consciousness kind of uh, kind of episode. Uh, probably going to end up being, uh, being shorter because even though, you know, I, I do work in radio, I, I can't pontificate on too much all that long right so uh you know it's gonna be a uh, it's gonna be a fun one and uh let's just uh let's get uh, right into it it's not really a race week over the last week um it's been kind of a kind of a quiet news heavy uh week and uh to be honest with you where's not much coming there there wasn't much last week this coming week we have uh the T- texas motor speedway race uh for indycar of course we also have uh the australian gp what i consider to be the traditional opening of the season and i just well let's start with uh the indycar series over at texas motor speedway over in uh fort worth over the last several years, uh, you know, we've seen uh, Joseph Newgarden take two victories. Pato Award, who could forget the second race in 2021, uh, taking his win with McLaren, uh, Arrow McLaren SP. You know, here's the deal, all right, is I don't really like this race as, how do I say this? I'm okay. I think IndyCar should be in Texas, but I do think that Texas is often viewed as the heartland of american motorsports and it gets a bad rap um for like it gets a rap as a great motorsports but like location but it's really an okay one and texas motor speedway is a track that has been hacked to bits uh when you when you really just talk about how it produces racing so Texas Motor Speedway is it's a uh, it's a two and a half mile or it's a two mile um, it's a two mile quad oval really or excuse me it's a mile and a half quad oval uh, that runs uh, twenty degrees banking in turns one and two and twenty four degrees in turns three and four now it's only a mile and a half which is not really significantly all that much longer than Gateway. And yet, it races closer to a super speedway than many ovals traditionally do. Texas Motor Speedway is a punch and coast kind of track. You're not really slamming on the brakes as you go into any of the turns. You're coasting into those turns and then gently reapplying the throttle as you go on it. Now, that sounds in theory like a decent like a decent race, and indeed in 2018 we had a tremendous pack race that took up there but ever since indycar has kind of shifted the cars into a more widespread uh into a more spreading kind of uh, aero package you've seen that that field really become more single file now in some places like gateway which is hard to compare because gateway has never really been a pack racing track it leads to dive bombier turns or 8500 it leads to more single passes and less you know group 
you know, racing. But Texas also kind of had itself kneecapped, for lack of a better term, as when you look at Texas, just the, the big thing that stands out is the dark areas of the track. And the, the what happened was NASCAR, uh, a few years back, decided to start putting down a drag racing compound, we call that PJ1, on the outside of, the, of certain tracks. Now, that drag racing compound increases grip in that area. It'll rip your shoe off if you step on it. And uh, it theoretically creates two-line racing. And in NASCAR, it's worked to, you know, various results, all right? It's been somewhat of a success in turns one and two. However, in IndyCar, cars don't like it that much because the, the it's no longer sticky by the time the IndyCar hits it, right? IndyCar hits it months afterwards. It's no longer sticky. It's just a stained area of track. And this is an issue <laughs> because... Tracks that are different colors bake differently under the Texas sun, which, when I say bake differently, you should just picture different temperatures. And as we all know in racing, temperatures are very important when it comes to grip. Cars are just really, really hard to race on that outside line. And uh, hopefully the uh, IndyCar continues to make strides. They've definitely tried a few things over the past years to make it just a little racier on the outside line. Um, but the unfortunate reality is that means that it becomes a one-line one, you know, race through turns one and two in this oval, which really just smashes them all. It doesn't give the cars enough time to make drastic amounts of overtake, which is not great. Not great. So to me... The one that you want to, uh, by the way, when I said 2018 earlier, I meant 2016. That was a Graham Ray Hall win. To me, though, if you're looking at the, uh, I believe it's still the Expel 275. If you're looking at this race coming up this year, um, uh, the PPG 375, excuse me. If you're looking at this and you're a betting man, take whatever racer starts on pole position not that it is guaranteed to be them but just statistically i think that works out to where he's the favorite and it's not a land of huge upsets if you're looking at it right now and you're asking me luke who is kind of the guy you like going into this scott dixon is never a bad bet and between 2018 and now uh so that is one two three four five six Six races in five years. He's logged three different wins in 2018, the first race of 2021, and the race in 2020. To me, Scott Dixon is a hard guy to bet against. Joseph Newgarden is also a good pick. Joseph Newgarden uh, really finding himself uh, as a, a good oval racer, and it's never too long into the season before Dixie or Newgarden get their first win. So those are my two picks. Um, I just, I, I look forward to any IndyCar race, but I would be lying if I said that Texas was among my favorites on the schedule. Um, I, I am intrigued though, uh, to just kind of see how it turns out because last year was a little racier. And if you continue moving into the racy territory, Texas has produced in the quote unquote recent ish past 
a entertaining enough race, right? And I don't even I don't dislike ovals. I'm going to the Indy 500. I do every year. I, it's just you gotta you gotta really <laughs> you know find the right circumstances. And I think that IndyCar is taking steps in the right direction to race on Texas. As we move uh, into the Formula One world, we have the uh, the <laughs> Grand Prix over at Melbourne, a race that, uh, again, you know, is not what I would say a particularly overtake-heavy race traditionally. Um, the Circuit Albert Park is one of the older circuits we have, which feels odd to say now. Um, but that being said, it's... Uh, it's a very meandery course. There's not a long straight sections. There's long sections where the cars are flat out, but the straights are not just DRS-friendly point-and-shoot-go kind of straights where you just overtake super easily at this track. Um, as you pull up, uh, as you pull up the track map, as I'm doing <laughs> right now, um, you uh, you take a look and really the the straight the main straight between turn 14 and turn one is one of the shorter on the calendar and from there the area between turn eight and turn nine is technically listed as a straight but as we know you're inputting handling into the wheel that does not make it a straight um cars treat it a little bit like a straight but it's it's not functionally a straight and at the same time, the area between 10 and 11 has a little bit of a kink. It's a, it's a straight, but it, really the, the whole shebang with Albert Park is leader takes off, and it's a game of follow the leader. It's a game that's won in strategizing and running a perfect race. It's not quite Monaco levels, but you'll find that kind of trait as you go into Albert Park. Now... It's important to note that last year they made some changes to this track um, that reprofiled several turns, and it had mixed results. I wouldn't say it was like a knockout of the park that the Australian GP last year was an unequivocal banger, but you can see in theory to how it works. Turn 1 and Turn 2 are a right-left chicane, and they opened up Turn 2. So instead of like a sharp right 90 and a sharp left 90, it's now kind of a gentle turn exiting uh, exiting turn one that's labeled turn two. Gets you a little more speed as you go into turn three, which hopefully makes that area between two and three a little more fast-paced. And you can see that reflected this year because that is now a DRS zone. The hope is that you can flip open the DRS and have enough space between two and three to make a turn. As you move on up, uh, the area between seven and eight is flattened out which means that seven to eight to nine what used to be a a what was that it was a right a sharp right hand turn into a gentle left is now just one big flowing curvy flat out section reminiscent almost of what jedi uh is in terms of uh its track characteristics think like the last curve on the spoon of Jetta, right? The really last big long turn. It's almost that kind of characteristic. The hope is that since the cars aren't really going to recognize this as a turn, that you can open that up into a passing zone as well. 
and you can see that in the track map. We have another DRS straight in the turn, but not labeled a turn between eight and nine. Now the corners nine and 10, they used to be a pretty, pretty tight little uh, left, right flick. Uh, it was a high speed, but it was not like a wide open corner. Those have been kind of slanted out so that they're no longer 90 degree corners. They're really more like seven or yeah, they're really more like, you know, a hundred and I would say almost a hundred and thirty degree corner. So hundred and thirty-five degree corner, somewhere around there. Uh a piece. So the hope is you carry more speed and then between ten and eleven, there's another DRS zone. So F1 is playing with DRS zones because they realize that this is overtaking is easy under DRS. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And as they play around these DRS zones, the more they experiment, the more they can maybe find a way to make Albert Park and many other circuits that traditionally don't work very well for that, they can try and make those work. Granted, a place like Monaco, there's only so many places you can put it. It won't really ever work until you shrink the cars at Monaco. But at Albert Park, they think that if they mess around with it enough, they might find something that works. And I think that it's never going to be Spielberg, but you can theoretically make something work there to present a passable GP. Uh, so F1 this year, they're playing with four DRS zones. DRS detection zone one will be between turns six and seven. And then that will lead to two DRS straights, as I mentioned, the kind of curvy straight between 8 and 9, and the kinked straight between 10 and 11. So basically, you will go through the detection zone of 6 and 7, you will round about turn 8, and then you'll flip it on right as you kind of straighten the wheel out before you hit that left-hand sweeper, and you should DRS right up close to a guy, and then close the flap of the DRS, take turns 9 and 10, and then reopen it as you exit 10. And hopefully, at that point, you have overtaken uh, your competitor. Whether that works in practice is to be seen. But it is something to watch, is where are the passes taking place? Are they taking place uh, as at that juncture, or are we just setting them up before that? And there's really a totally useless DRS zone. And keep in mind, too, that uh, as we progress through the DRS zones, some of these are just set-up DRS zones, and I'll talk about that right here. DRS detection zone 2 is between 13 and 14, and then it covers the main straight. You close off the flap, take turns 1 and 2, that's a right and a left, and then reopen it as you exit 2 up until you hit uh, turn number 3. So two separate DRS zones, one detection point. Uh, for both the front and the back side of this track. Now, like I said, sometimes there are setup DRS zones, right? And that's kind of what I'm just going to lazily refer to them as. In that, we realize as the FIA, not we, but like the FIA would realize that perhaps the distance between 14 and 1 isn't, you know, exactly as long as you need if you're wanting to take overtake someone in the current DRS formula. However, if I can close a gap from, you know, 0.95 seconds down to 0.2 seconds and then take turn one and two and close that, you know, now 0.3 second gap into a pass, 
that means that both of them have worked, right? So you might not see a pass between, say, 8 and 9, but if you see a guy close up on someone and then a pass in the subsequent 10 and 11, that is really where you might end up seeing, you know, that is really the where you might end up seeing the passes, but it's also where you could say that both of those DRSs are successes even though you don't see a pass between eight and nine or between you know 14 and one or maybe even between two and three maybe between two and three is what really allows people to bunch up after that chicane right it allows you to catch a driver and then by the time you hit turn eight you know what was you know what was going to be a one second gap and not a drs maybe that now throws you into drs range as you hit drs detection zone one and now all of a sudden you can overtake between eight and nine just because one specific DRS zone doesn't have any overtakes in this race isn't a testament to it breaking, or, not, or at least it isn't a testament to that DRS zone not working. It's more of a testament to, you know, maybe it's supposed to just bunch people up. Maybe the DRS zone between 10 and 11 bunches these two cars up close enough together that they can pass between 14 and 1. The only way that these DRS zones are an abject failure is if nobody passes at all during the race or they don't use these to close the gaps. I don't foresee that happening. I don't see this being a pass-heavy race, but I don't think that having this many DRS zones is going to be an abject failure. Now around the uh, 5.3-kilometer circuit here in Melbourne, uh, and it's been... 20 plus years of struggling to find overtaking at this point um and i don't dislike this circuit to be honest with you when i think of like classic f1 circuits i wouldn't say like all-timer classic but like this is a circuit that to me is synonymous with formula one right there's snow on the ground right now but when you turn on australia that is really the signal to me that the racing season has begun because you put you see the palm trees you see the wonderful australian crowd and it just you see the lakes the sun it really does feel like the season opener in a way that to me bahrain doesn't uh so i i i say all this by saying <laughs> Uh, I don't hate Melbourne. I'm not saying it's a great track for racing, but I like having it on the calendar more than I like Circuit Paul Ricard, which is not very good for racing and also, uh, you know, a traditional racing circuit. Um, so, yeah, you know, at Melbourne, it'll be interesting to watch. I think I'll be watching more on if the DRS zones work than the front end of the pack. I, I can't foresee Max Verstappen not just murdering the field here to, to be really to be 100 percent honest if qualifying goes out normally there's no way right there's no way as i take a sip of my uh sparkling ice with caffeine and so we're gonna uh roll on over to some more news uh grid boxes at the, at the Albert Park Circuit in Melbourne are now 20 centimeters wider and they are painting a center line in the grid boxes as well. Now, it, this is to really help uh, the cars, one, uh, line up. Uh, it's very hard to see the grid box that you're in. But two, also you see cars, they're angling things weird. They're getting hit with improper lineup procedures. They're saying, ah, you crossed the line. Teams are like, well, I mean... You know, it, 
it maybe if we had a little bit of extra help on where that line is instead of an invisible guesstimation we could do it and sure enough they're painting a center line so keep an eye out for that you'll see that uh on the track a center line on the grid boxes and also slightly wider 20 centimeters wider uh is not enough to maybe be pick up on tv but uh you might notice it as it's framing uh, the car uh and uh what else do we have i have some other stories to get up here with uh i'm i'm gonna admit folks i'm uh i am uh personally missing racing season right now i mean there's no racing going on uh in my uh in my personal life we had a double rain out in dallas and uh you know it's still winter here in minnesota so i'm just uh just awaiting for <laughs> racing to gear up and i can be next to loud cars again oh yes uh so uh formula equal i believe is uh, what it's called yeah craig pollock has been planning a new formula one team since 2018 and he's officially announced uh, that uh, he will uh, attempt to join under a formula uh, under you know the new guidelines a new Formula One team called Formula Equal. And before you get uh, excited, it's uh, it's funded by the Saudis and it's going to be an equal gender team funded by Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm uh, I'm, I'm excited on this. Formula Equal. Uh, let's let's just read the uh, the statement here. Craig Pollock has been planning a new Formula One team since 2018 when he first registered a British limited company called Formula Equal Holdings. Although prior to that, he was uh, involved in a very different project to launch an engine company called Pure to create an independent energy engine for the new hybrid in 2013. Um. Pollock has always been an ambitious thinker and is understood to be discussing funding with the government of Saudi Arabia, which is entirely logical. The kingdom has made no secret of wanting to own a Formula One team. Remember, they are really talking to McLaren, and McLaren's not really enthused on it. And in addition to being a big F1 sponsor, the Saudi has also tried to buy the whole business. It is funding the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix and the planned new track near Riyadh that is uh, going in. And it also has a stake in the McLaren Group and is the second largest shareholder in the Aston Martin Company. However, neither of the F1 teams are likely to be bought by the Saudis anytime soon, so there's an equal there's an opportunity for others to get them involved. For the moment, nobody's saying anything of the value, uh, which would suggest that all concerned are bound by NDAs, so confirming stories are very difficult. Um, so Craig Pollock is 67. He's had a long history in... Uh, in this sport since like the 1980s uh and uh formula equal is his equal gender team uh they're really making a strive to involve women uh, let me just tell you this is sports washing all right and uh, it would honestly kind of gross me out to see this team succeed and i'm a big proponent of expanding the grid um I I hate the ten the you know ten team field and I've been watching for years. I I don't think this is a healthy number. Uh, certainly the teams seem to think it's a healthy number, but that's because their value is tied to being a scarce commodity. So you can't really trust them, can you? Uh, um, if if you're going to expand the field and Formula Equal succeeds, but you look the other way when Andretti Cadillac was trying to come in. 
that's kind of disgusting to me. All right, it, the back of almost every racing series on earth, with the exception of this one, is that if you have the car and you abide by the rules, you can enter, right? That is how basically every team, every series runs. Uh, even NASCAR, with its charter system, it guarantees, you know, X number of, you know, charters come in, but at the same time, you can still roll up and try and qualify for the Daytona 500. Nothing's stopping you other than your resources and ability to do so. And that's traditionally how Formula One has operated for uh, eons, right? Is you're able to build the car that's to the specs, show up, pay the entry fees, and uh, bing, bang, boom, you can race. Doesn't mean you'll be good, but you can race. <laughs> um, and I think that there is a certain death of that everyman, that dream, that ability to start your own team. Frank Williams would not have been able to race today. Um, neither neither would, you know, Bruce McLaren uh, and McLaren uh, as, as a company. Would he be, would McLaren as a company be able to just start racing today, you know? Um, however, you, so like you can't just shut this off. At the same time, though, I had a bad feeling that this has like a modicum of being a team that gained some ground, and it's just because they're Saudi-backed. So while I usually celebrate, um, you know, like private teams coming in, privateer teams, you know, I, I can't lie and say that I'm excited for this team when a team with the might of the world behind it and Andretti Cadillac is getting poo-pooed from the grid. I just, I, I, it, it honestly kind of bothers me to be honest with you. I'm not excited about Formula Equal. Um. As we uh, keep moving on, let's see. Oh, uh, Porsche. Porsche is officially out of F1. Uh, they're uh, really just trying to uh, focus on uh, on uh, you know endurance and sports car racing, and uh, it keeps us on this trend of uh, hey, you know, maybe you sh maybe the barriers to entry are a little too high for this sport right now um that's my take by i know it's maybe not a popular one not that not that porsche would ever really be in if the barriers were that much lower so let's rewind porsche tried to buy uh tried to become the partner of red bull problem is they want a 50 plus one or more ownership that would give them the controlling stake of red bull Red Bull is a profit-generating uh, team, as most of the teams are nowadays. Red Bull turns a profit. They don't want to give away the say of what happens to that racing team to Porsche, which is perfectly fair. So they told Porsche to go kick rocks. Porsche now goes to McLaren. McLaren goes nowhere. They're like, no, we don't want you to buy out controlling stakeholder. And that's the thing is... is Porsche kind of is overvaluing what they bring to the table. Here's cash for control. And teams don't want to give up on control. Stakeholders in these teams are now, for the first time in, you know, borderline ever in Formula One, by and large, making money with this. So the idea of potential returns year over year is more enticing to them than just 
selling the team to Porsche, which is how it would work back in the day, right? You'd sell the team to Porsche, you'd cash out, and Bob's your uncle. So Porsche is bringing... They're not really bringing a lot of technology to this uh, partnership, is the rumor. And they're basically just paying... To control paying you a lump sum to control a team whereas you could have you know a profit generating asset in perpetuity and control your own destiny if you don't sell porsche doesn't really bring a lot of value in that proposition and porsche also does not want to start their own team it's kind of lazy and that's where they differ from audi who audi um i, I shouldn't say start their own team audi wants to build an engine they bought out Sauber, and they really want to run their own team, right? They want to bring the tech. They want to build their own engine. They want to be a manufacturer. Porsche just wants to be slap your logo on, you know, slap your we, – we want all of Red Bull's technology and their developers and blah, 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 but we want to own it. Red Bull says, I already own that. McLaren says, I already own all of this. I'm not just going to sell ownership to continue doing the same thing I'm doing and take a lump sum right now. Audi says, we'll do all of that for you over at, you know, Sauber uh, slash Alfa Romeo. It's the difference in philosophy that is what's going to make Audi, I don't want to say a successful team, but it's that's why Audi will make the grid. Um that being said, I'm not entirely sure I believe Audi until I see it. Uh, I I do think that my heart goes out, though, because Audi should have just been able to field a team instead of buy one out. That should have been an, you know a viable option. It's not, and you're seeing Andretti go through the same thing. Um, to me, also, I think there's an image thing where as much as Porsche teases Formula One, I don't know that that's their brand. I, I know that Porsches are still expensive, and I know that they're really teetering on the edge of becoming, like, just stupid expensive. But by and large, the Porsche is kind of the everyman's supercar, right? Like, 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 really, think about it. It's the everyman's sports car, if you will. They are owned by more people like you and I than a Lamborghini, than a Ferrari, right? Then even an Alpine, to be honest with you. I don't think I've ever seen an Alpine in the wild, but that just might be because I'm in the States. Porsche hit the market of guy who's been saving for this for a while and doesn't make like massive amounts of money, but just really enjoys motorsports and this car. And to me, that is not the brand that F1 pushes f1 is luxury luxury cars right like aston martin for crying out loud right that is a big money car the porsche 911 you know side uh, series is a little more attainable for day to day and i think that that is antithetical almost to your positioning in formula one as a glamour product um that being said audi you could argue the same thing about audi i mean there's Outside of, like, you know, the R8 line, um, they don't really make hundred. you know, they don't make Ferrari-level expensive cars, although they certainly have a wider range of cars available than Porsche. Uh, and also, by the way, Porsche's refusal to just pay money to be a sponsor is why Ford could swoop in 
and say, hey, just slap my name on. Ford's not bringing Jack Diddley, more or less, to this uh, Red Bull sponsorship deal. They're like, slap my logo on it, and here's, you know, X number of millions of dollars. That's why Ford was successful. Porsche was asking too much, and they were overvaluing what they brought to the table. They they were too confident in themselves, and that's why uh, they're, uh, they're just not going to be there. Excuse me. Uh, all right, so in other news, in other news, um, Atlantic City, New Jersey has approved uh, has approved a project for a quote an F1 style track. Now they're going to be converting um, a uh, a former uh, what is it? Yeah, they're going to landfill port parts of the back bay, and they're just going to convert a former airfield into a F1 style circuit containing housing, containing a luxury shopping center, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> You're not going to have to worry about this. I'll, I'll just be straight up with you. There is zero chance that Formula One wants to go to Atlantic City. I know they always talk about being in, in New York. Atlantic City is not super close to New Yorkers. I know it's only like a couple hours drive, if that. Um, but New Yorkers also don't drive. So, <laughs> it... That one, two, Atlantic City, and I know people hate on Las Vegas. I'll defend Las Vegas, but Atlantic City's a dump, dude. Atl Atlantic City is awful. It's a dying town. Um, it it is not a place that F one goes. If you're telling me that like F one is like not is looking over Austin, Texas, because it's not glamorous enough or something. Um, they're not looking at Atlantic City. I will tell you that this moment, this moment, um, Atlantic City is, uh, it's where you go to get stabbed, all right? If you've ever seen um, the Atlantic City episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, if you take the characters out but just give the vibe of that episode, it's not far from what Atlantic City is. I, I can't imagine that working. Also, nobody wants to go to Atlantic City. I mean, we kind of, we went over there. I, I don't want to go, nobody goes to Atlantic City anymore unless it's, you know, to do illicit drugs and just pass out on just an absolutely disgusting hotel. It It is, it's not what it used to be. I, I don't see that succeeding. They might very well build a racetrack um, there, but I don't think F1's ever could have come. And the housing, um, we'll see if that gets built. I have my doubts, but here's the deal, too, is when things are supposed to be built in New Jersey or really anywhere along that uh, that eastern New York-ish corridor, um, they'll announce a million and a half things. Whether or not it actually sees the light of day, uh, it's still a 1% chance of this thing even breaking ground, to be 100% honest with you. Uh, Bader Field is the former site of uh, the... Atlantic City Municipal Airport. It'll be out kind of on like a man-made peninsula a little bit. Um, and it looks... The, the track design looks like it's really folding up onto itself a lot. I don't know how finalized this is. But it's also like surrounded by housing complexes, surrounded by condos, surrounded by a shopping center. It's very much a custom-made circuit. But I don't see how it would host a Formula One race. Um, 
it's an absurd, absurd claim to try and host Formula One at uh, at that track. There's there's absolutely no way. Uh, mark my words, there is absolutely no way. Um, you don't have to worry about that. No. <laughs> uh, now you could worry about uh, Saudi Arabia holding uh, two uh, two F1 races, but that's uh, that's a whole nother thing to be. Uh, to be discussed in a later episode where uh, Tim is with us. Okay, so let's see. So we have Australia GP, Max Verstappen's by pick. I'm picking Scott Dixon to uh, win uh, to win the race uh, in Texas for IndyCar, which has been slightly more promoted, maybe. And then, uh, other than that, uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Tim will be back hopefully and uh that or we'll get dylan and uh i will uh we'll talk to you next week i know this is a shorter episode but uh i'm one man i can only ramble for so long love you guys thanks for listening see you